Karen Babb, thanks so much for coming back onto Evolution Soup from your office in Arizona. You are a biological anthropologist and associate professor in the Department of Anatomy at Midwestern University, Arizona, and your main interests are the extinct relatives of humans and what the shape of hominin skulls can tell us. Now, last interview, we talked about the famous hobbits of Flores Island, Indonesia, but today we're going to be looking at the hobbits' likely ancestors the most successful human relative of all, Homo erectus, and how they, over a period of nearly two million years, just about took over the world. So um, how are you doing, Karen, since our last interview? We're nearing the end of this pandemic, more or less. Do things seem to be uh, getting back to normal for you at all? Well, so here in Arizona, they are um, allowing educators to get vaccinated. So I'm fully vaccinated, mm. which is a huge um, mental load off. Um, and wow. my husband is also vaccinated. But we have two young children and their vaccinations are sort of somewhere in the future. So it feels a little bit better, but we're still being very cautious and looking forward to the actual end of this, if that if that's ever a thing. <laughs> Well, out of all the hominids that have been discovered over the years, Homo erectus is perhaps the most well-known to the general public, other than Neanderthals. The history and variation are not common knowledge, however, so let's begin with that history. When was Homo erectus first discovered? So the first discoveries of Homo erectus were in 1891. So it's one of the oldest species on record. Uh, Eugene Dubois was a Dutch anatomist. Um, he was interested in comparative anatomy, but he was also trained as a, as a physician. And he read Darwin's work and he became convinced that we could find the missing link between humans and our ape ancestors. And he intuited that this would be in a kind of tropical habitat where you might find apes. So he joined the army, the Dutch army, as a surgeon, and he was able to finagle a post to the Dutch East Indies, which is what we now know as Indonesia. And so he was there for years and years, uh, kind of looking for fossil sites in um, Sumatra, in Java, and it's almost unbelievable, but he actually did find hmm. um, fossils of an early human ancestor. So he found the trinal skull cap. He found a couple of teeth and some parts of the femur, the thigh bone. And at another nearby site, and these are both on the island of Java, he found a little part of a mandible. And mostly on the strength of the skull cap, the calvaria, he named a new species. And he named it Pithecanthropus erectus. Hmm. And erectus means upright, walking, so walking on two legs. And Pithecanthropus means ape-like. So it was an upright, ape-like um, animal. Right. 
And uh, it's all about bipedality, isn't it, With, for a paleoanthropologist, really? Well, it's such an obvious and defining feature that kind of sets us apart from uh, modern-day apes, which are um, quadrupeds. They use all four limbs. They're very um, accomplished climbers. And then you have humans who are habitually, or almost all of the time, walking mm. upright on two legs. And so, yes, the, the femur was very modern-looking, and um, the... The skull cap, although not complete, it's really just the top part, certainly indicated a larger brain than you would find in a chimpanzee or a gorilla or something on that kind of um, in that group. So he, he was quite convinced. And, um, you know, since that time, there's been quite a few other finds from the island of Java indicating mm. that was... Um, you know, Homo erectus was relatively common on that island, maybe between about 1.3 million years ago and as recently as 100,000 years ago. So quite a time span, mm -hmm. even on that one island. Um, other notable historic finds include the, the um, dragon bone hill fossils, which are from China, a very famous cave site known as Jakudian, which has a whole series of fossils. Mm -hmm. And then later in time, we started finding very similar fossils in Africa, indicating a very large geographic span. And ultimately, we've now added additional fossils from Eurasia. So can you describe Homo erectus for us? Now, later we'll get into the variation that has been discovered over the years, but let's just start with a general description. So Homo erectus is a, as we already mentioned, is a fully bipedal upright walking hominin. Um, in fact, one of the notable features of Homo erectus in terms of its skeleton kind of below the head mm -hmm. is that it has fairly modern limb proportions. So earlier species, even in the same genus, the genus Homo, seem to have long arms and shorter legs, kind of more ape-like proportions. And the significance of that has been debated, but Homo erectus seems to be the first ancestor who has modern limb proportions, a longer low, lower limb, a longer leg, mm -hmm. and maybe a shorter upper limb or a shorter arm. But in fact, most of the Homo erectus fossils are skulls. Um, and so most of the species definitions for Homo erectus focus on features of the skull. So what you see in Homo erectus is um, a brain size which is distinctly larger than Australopithecines, which are very early members of our the human uh, group, mm -hmm. and certainly larger than apes, but typically not quite as large as modern humans. But within that, there's quite a range. So mm -hmm. there are fossils, and we'll talk about some of that variation later, so oh, I'll yeah. come back to that. The skulls tend to be uh, kind of low and long. So what you might think of as almost like an American football, um, a little bit more of that than the very high forehead, the very round skull that you would see mm. in a typical human. Um, Homo erectus is also notable for being a very, has a, having a very robust skull. So there's very prominent brow ridges that really stick out. There's ridges of bone across the back of the head that are very notable when you can when you see the skull. The back of the bone is also more angled rather than being rounded and tall. Um, it's quite wide at the back of the skull in addition to that. And sometimes the cranial bones are described as being quite thick. Um, 
the face, though, is not as uh, prognathic. It doesn't stick out as much as you would see in those earlier Australopithecus species, although on average it's still larger and more robust than, a, than the very small face of a modern human. Right. And is it true uh, that the, the skull is it's a, it's thicker than other bones or more robust, shall we say, that that's why it gets left behind? Or did scavengers just take the rest of the, the body? Yeah, that that's a great question. Um, why do we find so many skull caps for Homo erectus? Even the faces are typically missing. And that's even more apparent when you look at the Asian fossil record. Um, there's very few well-preserved faces and mm. a very small number of postcrania. And the reasons may be related to just the way that things are preserved. Um, kind of the Skulls vagary. have to be thick, don't they, to protect the brain? So perhaps they just last well, longer. Certainly the, <laughs> right. So the bones are very thick in Homo erectus. And so that may mm. be in, in part a part of the reason that we have so many of them. But for example, in Java, many of the fossils that have been recovered have been recovered along rivers and may have been moved in the water along the rivers. And so you can imagine more delicate faces breaking off, whereas the kind of rounder cranial vault may have survived that process. So some of the reasons might not be so interesting and are just related to what we call taphonomic processes the things that happen to bones after burial. That's right. So I think it's, it's a solo man that was found near the river solo. Yes. Yeah, so what we sometimes call solo man um, or Niandong is are some of the uh, youngest Homo erectus fossils in the record. Um, the dating has been variable over the years, but the most recent uh, dating attempts suggest they're only 100,000 years old. And we have modern humans that are two or 300,000 years old in Africa. So there is some contemporaneity, some um, they're alive at the same time as modern humans in other parts of the world. Karen, do we know where Erectus came from and what species evolved from them? So as with everything in paleoanthropology, there's a lot of discussion and some heated debate. Um, so what I'll say is that for a long time, there was a very um, strong consensus that Homo erectus evolved in Africa. And the reason for this is that for a long time, the oldest Homo erectus fossils were in East Africa. And in addition to that, all of the earlier species in the genus Homo are also known from East Africa. So Occam's razor suggests the simplest explanation is that they evolved from something perhaps like Homo habilis, which mm -hmm. is uh, a slightly more primitive and smaller um, species that came earlier in time. That said, the discovery of the fossils from Dimenisi in Georgia, the Republic of Georgia, have mm -hmm. kind of thrown a little bit of a wrench in there. They are about 1.8 million years old, which is almost exactly the same age as the earliest Homo erectus fossils in Africa. And in some ways, their anatomy seems more primitive, which to some authors suggests that perhaps Homo erectus actually evolved outside of Africa and then migrated into Africa from Asia or Eurasia. 
Um, the discovery of stone tools, although no associated fossils, at 2.1 million years in China could be read as further evidence for an early migration out of Africa and a possible um, origin for Homo erectus that is not in, in Africa. But that's not 100% clear right now. At the other end of the spectrum, what evolved from Homo erectus? And this is also a very interesting question. So traditionally, the, the thought has been that African Homo erectus evolved into the common ancestor of modern humans and Neanderthals in Africa. So that has sometimes been called Homo heidelbergensis, but there's a whole mm -hmm. bunch of other names it's been called too. And then the Asian groups are basically um, relict populations, kind of a dead end from an evolutionary perspective. Certainly interesting in their own right, mm. but perhaps not contributing to later species. Now, that said, ancient DNA from Neanderthals, Denisovans, and modern humans, if you trace back that ancestry, some of the dates suggest that those groups diverged as early as 800,000 years ago. If that turns out to be the case, then Homo erectus may actually have been the direct ancestor of Neanderthals and modern humans rather than the ancestor of their ancestor. So a little bit more direct ancestor. And we'll have to wait and see um, where that date ends up and that might help us clarify the role of Homo erectus in later human evolution. Well, Karen, you just mentioned uh, Dmanisi. You've actually worked on the Dmanisi excavation site in Georgia near Russia. A group of five fossils were found there that are now thought to be erectus skulls. Originally, the skulls looked so odd that paleoanthropologists weren't even sure how to classify them. Isn't that right? The site of Dimenisi came as quite a surprise. In the early 90s, they announced the discovery of a mandible, which looked like it belonged in the genus Homo, but was mm. dated to about 1.7 to 1.8 million years ago. And this really kind of disrupted thinking that was going on at the time. We didn't at the time think that there were very such an early migration um, outside of Africa. Uh, the dates in Asia have always been a little bit tricky. Um, they're not as secure typically as some of the sites from East Africa. That said, the dating there now appears quite secure and the fossils appear to be from about 1.77, 1.8 million years ago. And since the discovery of the initial mandible, they have added uh, three other mandibles and five crania. And those can be paired up so that you end up with four more or less complete skulls and then one just kind of skull cap with no associated jaw. They've also found a whole, um, a whole bunch of postcrania bones, so bones from the skeleton below the head. Um, these include foot bones and um, I think there's some vertebrae and some other bones that indicate something about body size and body shape in the Dimenisi hominins. What's kind of notable about the Dimenisi hominins is their small brain size. So the brains range from about 546 to about 775 cubic centimeters. And so that overlaps the smallest end of the hmm. uh, documented 
brain size in Homo erectus. Um, and then it also brings it even lower. So the smallest Dimenisi fossils are smaller than any other Homo erectus fossils anywhere in the world. Um, there's some other interesting things about that particular group. They are associated with some stone tools. Um, the stone tools are very simple stone tools, what we would typically characterize as Oldowan or mm -hmm. Mode 1 stone tools, rather than the more advanced um, Acheulean stone tools. And their body size also overlaps the smallest range of Homo erectus body size, but is on average a little bit smaller. So we see these kind of small-bodied, small-brained hominins with a pretty basic stone tool technology appearing outside of Africa almost simultaneously um, to the time that we find them first in East Africa. So very early on, there arose a kind of debate, which I, in my opinion is still ongoing. Do these represent a very um, early and kind of stem version of Homo erectus? Or are they distinct enough to be put into their own species, mm. Homo georgicus? So in part, this reflects a common controversy in human evolution between um, at one end, you have the splitters that tend to see variation as representing species level differences or lumpers who often view variation as being typical individual differences or differences due to sex, so male and female. Um, and so they would tend to lump that into the larger um, Homo erectus species. So I usually view them as Homo erectus, but I do recognize that they are both small and in some ways, in some ways actually more primitive, less derived and unique than some of the East African fossils. And so that does call into question exactly how these populations relate to one another. And could uh, the, the the climate have been a factor in this this weird variation of these five? Because it's a different place to Africa, definitely. Right. So it's true that you mentioned very early in the interview that Homo erectus is is kind of a kind of an outlier. Like modern humans, it's really dispersed into much more varied habitats, um, higher. Um, latitudes, particularly in China, um, mm -hmm. where it got into more northern latitudes, but then also all the way back down into Southeast Asia. And so you have these more temperate and more tropical habitats. And Georgia is no exception. These would represent a more temperate habitat than what you would see in East Africa. What the exact implications of that are, are a little bit tricky. So some of my own research looks at whether we can parse out the specific evolutionary factors that shaped um, the cranial or the skull um, shape in Homo erectus. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I found is that the frontal bone, where your forehead is and where your brow ridges are, that there is a signal for natural selection in the frontal bone that we don't see in modern humans, for example. And that may reflect its integration with the rest of the face and the orbit. And we know that the face is typically more responsive to variation in climate. So it's possible that the signal of natural selection in the frontal bone, the front part of the skull in Homo erectus could reflect an adaptation to climate. But we need a little bit more work in order to say that with certainty. Wow, interesting. <laughs> Well, this leads us on to the subject of variation, and Homo erectus as a species has presented scientists with a lot 
a variation. In fact, it's this very topic that continues to spark the most debate about this hominid. Isn't that right? So paleoanthropologists have a, a minor obsession with classification and taxonomy and how do we name things and how do we divide, subdivide, or group things together. Um, and there's some good reasons for that. You need to understand um, how many species and how much variation you see in a species to understand biodiversity, to understand whether we're examining population level or species level um, evolutionary changes. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the first fossils assigned to Homo erectus um, were actually assigned to Pithecanthropus erectus, but that was mm. later moved into our own genus. And those were from Southeast Asia. And so, no matter what else happens, the fossils from Trinil and some of the other early fossils on Java will always be um, in Homo erectus. Because once a fossil, once a, a, a new name, is put out there, the fossils associated with that new name always keep that name. Mm -hmm. And so there are workers that would divide the large group of fossils we've been talking about into an Asian species, which retains the Homo erectus name. And that would typically include at least the early Indonesian fossils and probably the Chinese fossils. Whether the more the younger and larger brain fossils in Java would also stay in there, depends on how many species you want to recognize. They could be assigned to something separate like Homo soloensis, um, although that's not a very typical designation. At the other side, more Western part of the old world, you would have a second species called Homo ergaster. And Homo ergaster would certainly include fossils from East Africa, um, around the time period between maybe 1.9 million years ago and 1.2 million years ago, let's say. Mm. Um, perhaps even younger fossils might be put into that group. This would include, for example, um, Turkanaboy, who is a, a juvenile fossil with almost a complete skeleton found in Kenya. And probably it would include those fossils from Dimenisi, Georgia, although again, um, depends on whether you want to include Homo georgicus as a separate species. Mm. So even in that brief overview, you can see that there's a range of positions. The lumpers would say all of that represents um, the kind of variation you would expect from isolated populations that yeah. might be undergoing genetic drift, becoming a little bit unique and different, but not representing a, a wholly unique species. At the other end, you would have workers who might recognize, I would guess, maybe even six or seven different species for the same fossil collection. And then you might have an intermediate position, which would have just two main species, Homo erectus for the Chinese and Indonesian group, and then Homo ergaster for the African and Georgian group. Um, but it's worth pointing out that these distinctions are always a little fuzzy. So there is a very kind of large, robust skull called OH9 from the famous Olduvai Gorge site in Tanzania, which has been uh, kind of linked to the Asian fossils, even though it's oh. in Africa. Um, there were fossils, there's been a fossil found in Ethiopia called Daka, which is about 800,000 years ago. So it's a little bit younger in Africa. And again, there have been links made to the Asian specimens. 
So how exactly you assign every individual fossil, even if you want to divide them, is not always perfectly clear. And that's because there is this variation. Uh, there's variation in brain size that I alluded to. So at Demonisi, you have fossils as with cranial capacities, so volumes inside the neurocrania, less than 600 cubic centimeters. And then you have fossils on Java that are 1,200 cubic centimeters. So twice as big. Now there's a lot of time in between those two. And in fact, um, mm. there's good evidence that brain size undergoes a linear increase, so an expansion through time. But at any given time interval, any slice of time, you're also going to see variation in brain size. And I suppose there are a lot of uh, critics of the you know, the lumpers and splitters, as you call them. But but really, I think a lot of the the critics, uh, perhaps, they forget to factor in the vast uh, period of time. Right. And so we know that there's certain we can see certain trends in the data, regardless of whether you split them or not. There is a clear increase in brain size. Um, hmm. As I mentioned, there's certainly variation at any moment in time. Even at the site of Dimenisi, there's variation from like about um, 545 cubic centimeters up to 775 cubic centimeters. So we know that even in what is almost certainly a single population in a very mm -hmm. short period of time, there is variation. Um, but we can also take that kind of variation and then you know, look at it through time and there's a clear trend toward larger brain sizes. Um, and there's other differences too. So I mentioned that there's like very large brow ridges and ridges of bone at the back mm. of the skull. We tend to see those expressed more strongly in the Asian fossils than in the African fossils. But that's not always the case and it's not always um, uh, crystal clear that there's a very strong distinction. Um, Philip Reitmeyer, who's been looking at Homo erectus for decades, would argue that um, within any given region, there's lots of variation and that the trends between regions are not that much stronger than what you would see within a given region. And my own work on cranial shape bears that out. The differences between China and Indonesia are almost as great as between Asia hmm. and Africa. So it's not just a simple um, Asia-Africa or Asia-Africa-Eurasia dichotomy. There is variation at different time periods and within larger regions as well. That said, there is a lot of similarity and they are clearly distinct from earlier HOMO, from later HOMO. And when you measure how much variation you see in HOMO erectus, it doesn't really exceed what you would see in most single species, like a single single species of chimpanzees. Well, when we think of this species, we think of migration. Homo erectus specimens have been found all over the world, as you've said, from Africa to the Far East. So what might have caused erectus to have migrated so far? So again, I'll kind of start with some um, historical background on this. Let's think about Homo erectus before the discoveries at Dimenisi. Um, and we can think about then the kind of outsized importance that the Turkanaboy fossil has had on this debate. Um, so Turkanaboy is a juvenile individual found on the west side of Lake Turkana in Kenya. 
And it's been very impactful because it has almost an entire skeleton. And because it's a juvenile, it's an adolescent, and that gives us information about growth in addition to information about body size and proportions and shape. Based on this fossil, the initial, um, the initial research suggested that it would undergrow an additional growth spurt, an adolescent growth spurt like we see in modern humans, and ultimately would have been almost six feet in height, which is like a fairly tall modern human man currently. It was also suggested to have a relatively slim build, so kind of mm. tall and narrow, and with long lower limbs, and then additional discoveries of this new type of stone tool called the Achillean stone tool. It's like a, it was often associated with these large um, hand axes that are chipped yep. and worked on both sides. So we have simultaneously evidence of maybe a larger and more modern body. We have this more uh, technologically advanced stone tool, these hand axes that show more complex um, technological skill. And then we also have some evidence for animal history, so cut marks on bones. And workers kind of wove a very complex web around these observations. They kind of connected the dots and suggested that around this time, uh, Homo erectus evolved a larger brain, a more modern body, long lower limbs. They were um, behaving in a more complex way as evidenced by these Achillean hand axes. They were butchering animals and using those really rich animal resources to fuel mm -hmm. these large brains and big bodies. And they were therefore having these larger home ranges and they were spending more time kind of focusing on herd animals and um, following these herbivores and their migration patterns. And so this kind of web was woven about why Homo erectus might have been the first species to migrate um, out of Africa. Now, if we bring in some of the newer evidence, which suggests that the Demonisi hominins who are out of Africa by a minimum of 1.8 million years. They're already in Eurasia at 1.8 million years. If we look at the fact that there's stone tools in China that are probably at least as old as the Dimenisi site. And if we think back to Homo floresiensis and the fact that although it's much younger in age, it also maintains some primitive morphology, there are these hints now that that initial migration out of Africa might've been a much smaller bodied, smaller brained, less technologically advanced hominin. That doesn't mean that it wasn't utilizing animal resources and it may still have been migrating kind of alongside or behind these um, herbivores that it might have been um, trying to forage from or scavenge from. Um, that said, we just don't have a full picture on that. Um, these more advanced stone tools appear in Africa at 1.7 million years which that's the oldest date currently, and it postdates the appearance of Homo erectus in Eurasia. Um, it, it is believed that Homo erectus did um, create this new and more complex technology, but it's not clear that that fueled their dispersal. And uh, I think like we had mentioned before when we were talking before the show, um, 
They didn't know they were leaving Africa as such. They just went in a certain direction following the herds or for whatever reason. Right. And so Robin Dennell, who's done a lot of um, Paleolithic archaeology work um, in Asia, has suggested that we could view it as kind of this savanna stand where you have this large continuous mm. landmass, similarities in environments. Hominins aren't recognizing continental or country boundaries. They are just moving through their environment and expanding. Perhaps their population size is expanding and there's pressures for them to explore new areas. Um, perhaps there were changes in their behavior that are not easy for us to pick out of the archaeological and fossil record that may have um, allowed them to expand in a way that earlier groups couldn't. Or, as I pointed out, it may be that we have earlier migrations and we just don't have a lot of um, solid uh, fossil evidence for those yet. I'd also like to point out that um, in terms of body size, although the Dimenisi hominins are not uh, that much are not very large in their body size. There are hints that overall Homo erectus may have shown the first kind of increase in body size, even if it wasn't simultaneous with the migration out of Africa, um, if that's what happened. And we have evidence from this, of course, from bones themselves. Mm -hmm. We can estimate height and weight, but we also have footprints. So at 1.5 million years in Kenya, there is an amazing site called Illerit, which has footprints of multiple individuals. I don't know, maybe around 20 individuals or so. And they indicate that Homo erectus individuals were probably around a little under 50 kilograms on average, with, of course, some variation around that. They seem to be walking with a more or less modern human gait. So for one thing that modern humans do when they walk is they push off of their big toe and mm. they push off of that bone right behind it. And so you get a kind of deep impression in a footprint in that region. And we see that in these Homo erectus footprints as well. Um, so that's kind of interesting, too. We, see, we do see a modern human uh, form of walking in Homo erectus. Well, one of the most complete hominid skeletons ever found, as we mentioned, was the 1.5 million year old Turkana boy found in Kenya in 1984. Turkana boy was part of the non-migratory Homo erectus group, the so-called African Homo erectus or Homo ergaster. Karen, what distinguishes Homo ergaster from Homo erectus? So I touched on this briefly before, but there are features of the skull that are kind of unique in Homo erectus. Things like the way that the brow ridge is shaped, it's very straight and flat. Um, there are little ridges and crests of bone on the outer surface of the skull, each of which has its own name, that are kind of different and we don't see them, for example, in modern humans. Um, and they seem to be expressed more consistently and perhaps in a more extreme form in some of the Asian uh, fossils. Whereas we might think of the African and even the Georgian fossils as being a little more generalized, so a little bit less extreme. And so it's easier than to imagine those more generalized um, Homo erectus populations evolving into something else. They haven't kind of moved 100% in the direction of Homo erectus, you could say. That said, you mentioned Turkanaboy, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about that fossil. Um, I mentioned previously that it is a child. It's not an adult. It's probably eight or nine years of age. 
what's kind of tricky about it is that um, we intuitively want to think of Homo erectus as being very modern and therefore developing and growing uh, just like a modern human. But there's been increasing evidence that Homo erectus did not develop or grow in the same way that modern humans did. Um, if you look at the uh, proportional brain growth, so how much brain growth has occurred at any given age, if you look at the way that the teeth develop and erupt, if you look at the development of the skeleton, the limb bones, they all seem to be um, perhaps intermediate in between oh. the, the slower human pattern and the more rapid chimpanzee pattern. And if we kind of put all this together, it turns out that Homo erectus probably would never have been six feet tall, maybe closer to five and a half feet tall as an adult, suggesting that while it may have undergone an adolescent growth spurt like we see in modern humans, it would not have been such a marked growth spurt. Typically, Homo erectus probably wasn't as tall as we initially suspected from the Turconoboy fossils. Um, something else that's worth noting is that the initial reconstruction of the rib cage and the pelvis of mm -hmm. uh, the Turconoboy um, indicated that it had a kind of long and narrow body type, like certain groups of modern humans living in sub-Saharan Africa, like the Maasai or the Turkana people. And this kind of led to all sorts of ideas about how their bodies were adapted for the hot, dry climate they lived in. Whereas in, you might contrast that with Neanderthals that are kind of wide and barrel chested and maybe that's more of a cold adapted body type. But since that time, there's been another pelvis recovered and assigned to Homo erectus, not without debate, but that mm -hmm. pelvis is much wider. It has a much more flaring um, blades that kind of wrap around the side of the pelvis. And that shape is actually more primitive. And it suggests that perhaps uh, there might have been an error in the reconstruction of the Turconoboy pelvis. And then just, just uh, last year in 2020, they did a virtual reconstruction of the rib cage, the thoracic cage that surrounds your lungs and your heart. And based on the kind of shape and angulation of the ribs and the vertebra, the backbones behind that, they suggested that, in fact, the uh, rib cage is quite deep from front to back and wider than initially reconstructed. And if you put those two pieces of evidence together, it suggests that while the limb bones seem more modern, the limb proportions, the kind of uh, the core, if you will, of the body was not fully modern in Homo erectus. And that modern human um, rib cage and pelvis appeared later in evolution. So that reminds me of going back to the more primitive hominids like Lucy. They were quite, you know, their rib cages yeah. sort of flared out quite a bit. Yeah. Well, you, in fact, if you look at the pelvis of even like Neanderthals and some other, some other kind of later Homo species, it's not that narrow. So in some ways, Turconoboy looks like the outlier now that we have more evidence. But that's how science works. We yeah. continually kind of alter our interpretation and we go back and use new technology and more information to kind of modify and alter those conclusions and hopefully improve on them over time. Homo erectus was around for almost two million years, much longer than any other hominid, including ourselves. So in that time, they must have established behaviors, uh, technologies, and physical traits that were perhaps 
passed on to other hominid species that came later. Uh, what do we know about the accomplishments of Erectus? What was unique about them? So we've talked about little bits and pieces of this throughout this interview, so I'll try and kind of summarize this. So if we think about the anatomy of Homo erectus, um, one thing that we see is the appearance, we think for the first time, of a really modern limb proportions, a shorter arm, a longer leg. We see evidence uh, in Kenya at one and a half million years for a fairly modern way of walking, a fairly modern upright gait um, with kind of the same, um, same way of using our feet, for example. At the same time, though, we see that the rib cage and the pelvis are still fairly wide, fairly deep, and that might indicate that they were not entirely modern in their body shape. If we think about their behavior, uh, this isn't really my area, but certainly I'm at least aware of, of what has been said about them more recently. It seems that there is some pretty good evidence for fire at the Jakutian cave site in, in China. And the fire would allow them to kind of buffer themselves from the more extreme environments they might have um, might have had to deal with at those higher latitudes. In terms of their technology, if we think that Homo erectus appears around 1.9, 1.8 million years, it's mm. just after that, at 1.7 million years, that we see the first evidence of a more complex stone tool known as the Acheulean hand axe that is worked bifacially and symmetrically on both sides. The Oldowan stone tools, the, the maybe the simpler stone tools, they still exist and we find evidence for them in Africa and Asia throughout Homo erectus time span. So there's no reason to think they weren't using those. And in fact, just last year, at the, there was a, an article describing Homo erectus at Gona between 1.5 and 1.25 million years ago, associated with both types of stone tools at both oh. of those time periods. So we know, or we are fairly confident that Homo erectus was using simple stone flakes, and also these more complex um, hand axes. And so as far as that indicates an increase in their cognitive abilities, their abilities to plan a stone tool and then produce that plan, um, there may be some evidence for that kind of change in cognition and change in technical abilities. We know that Homo erectus is the first species that we know of that lived in more temperate habitats, more variable climates compared to earlier Homo that seems to be um, more constrained to the tropical, the more tropical habitats of East Africa. We know that they had um, a fairly modern way of walking and that is evidenced by the footprints that we see in, um, in East Africa. Well, this is such a huge subject and it could make for several interviews. I can certainly understand why this group is your main focus of research. It's not an easy subject to encapsulate, so I'm grateful that you've been able to take the time to condense down your knowledge of this fascinating species for the Evolution Soup audience. As before, I will leave links to your work and social media in the description below. And all that's left to say is thank you once again, Karen, for coming on to Evolution Soup. Thank you, Mark. I had such a such a good time. There's so much more I could say, but um, I really appreciate the time to talk about this very interesting species.